All right, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to uh, Sunday morning, Young Adult Bible Fellowship class. Going to give away this little book, and uh, I'll give you the question in a moment. But you might recognize the, um, the phrase there, because that's what I'm preaching on this Sunday and last Sunday, Healthy Church. And Mark Dever, he is known for, so this his, his uh, ministry now that they developed at his church is called Nine Marks. Nine Marks, it's just Nine Marks. It used to be Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, now it's Nine Marks. The original book that he published, one of his first books, was Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. And um, so it, the original book is quite unwieldy, in my opinion, <laughs> so I'm glad he condensed it. And um, so this is a good little, uh, helpful little book, maybe not even, I mean, one that I think would be of interest to you, but also one that you could read and then pass on to somebody who is wrestling with where they should attend church and become a member, or whether or not they should become a member, and so on. So a good little book, a condensed version of his much larger book on the same topic, and so you can win that today. I didn't plan it this way, but I think I have nine marks, nine qualities of a healthy church in the two-week series. I didn't plan to do it, and they're different than his because he's being more systematic and addressing like that larger question, what like, the whole New Testament says, whereas I was just going through uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. So um, there'll be a ton of overlap, though, as you can imagine. So uh, you get to win this book today, and uh, the person who will win it will, has to answer this question. Give me... I'm going to... I think you can do this. Give me three questions a Christian should ask before deciding whether or not to participate in a given activity that is not directly addressed in Scripture. Three questions that a Christian should ask. All right, Madeline, go for it. Um, does it align with Scripture, or is it conflicting with Scripture? Okay. Does it conflict me, or is it conflicting my brother? So I'm going to give it to you. Am I fully persuaded it is right, so does it conflict with me? Um, does it edify my brother? Um, does it bring peace? So you wanting to remove conflict. And um, can I do it as under the Lord? Yeah, I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. <laughs> You're welcome. All right, so let us begin uh, with a word of prayer, and then we'll crack open Romans 14 once again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness to us, just immeasurable blessings day after day. Your mercies are new every morning. Uh, thank you for the fellowship of the saints that encourages us and builds us up and helps even when we are downcast, even being in the presence of the saints can be uh, uplifting to our souls uh, by your design. Lord, I pray that you would help us now to better understand your word on this central uh, topic of central importance and how we get along with one another with whom we disagree. So help us now to rightly interpret your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Romans 14. Let's turn back there and we will just, I'm just going to briefly remind us of the principles. How do we disagree with fellow Christians on non-essentials, or put it positively, how do we get along with fellow Christians when we disagree on matters of non-essentials or disputable matters, disputable issues? Not dogmatic pillars, not doctrinal differences, but disputable matters. First one is to what? Welcome one another. 
on the basis of Jesus Christ and His work alone. Okay, A warm welcome to any believer only on the basis of what Christ has done, not on any other difference that we might have. Number two, revere the power of God in your brother or sister's life. Because they are a believer, God is able to uphold that person and not on the basis of their, the scruples of conscience or on these disputable matters. God is able to uphold them. So revere the power of God in your brother's or sister's life. That's Romans 14, verse 4. Be convinced of your own position. Have a conviction. Know what you believe, and then follow through with that conviction. That's number three. Number four, and this is huge, and so I pressed it really hard last week and, and, and encourage you to cultivate this in your own life and to see if it doesn't make a difference in your own personal spiritual joy, and that's recognize your brother's or sister's God-glorifying motives. You could probably even say, assume your brother's or sister's God-glorifying motives. Assume that your brother or sister in Christ does what they do for the glory of God, not to gain the approval of others, not to show off their strictness, not to flaunt their freedoms, but they do what they do for the glory of God. And that will have a huge, hugely powerful effect in our relationships and how we treat each other and how we think about one another. And how it will help dispel self-righteousness. Okay, So we want to recognize or assume our brothers and sisters God-glorifying motives. They do what they do for the glory of God. And I have no other reason to believe otherwise. And we're not talking about sin, right? If, you, if someone is sleeping with their boyfriend or sleeping with their girlfriend, okay? We, that's not a place where you assume God-glorifying motives. That is a clear violation of God's uh, law, of God's rules, of God's word, right? Of God's beauty and design of marriage and that uh, physical intimacy and that being the place where physical intim intimacy is consummated, is in marriage. So we're not talking about the violation of very clear biblical truth, we're talking about disputable matters. And whatever it is, you just assume that your brother or sister is glorifying God. And then under that heading, I gave you a list of questions to ask yourself when in a situation you have to make a decision about whether or not to participate in a given activity that Scripture doesn't directly address. And here are the eight questions. Am I fully persuaded that it is right? Can I do it as under the Lord? Can I do it without being a stumbling block to my brother or sister in Christ? Does it bring peace? Does it edify my brother? Is it profitable? Does it enslave me? And does it bring glory to God? And these are not overbearing questions. In fact, each one of these is rooted in a biblical text, either from Romans 14 or 1 Corinthians 6 or 1 Corinthians 8 or 1 Corinthians 10. They're all rooted in a biblical text. So this is not overbearing. This is not overwhelming. This is not burdensome. This is actually a freeing way to live because this is the way you guard your own conscience to walk in a good conscience before the Lord. This is the kind of questions that will produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness in our life. And then number five, this is for today's lesson. Number five, and this is coming from verses 10 through 12. Let's read them. Consider the future judgment. Consider the future judgment. You want to get along well with your brothers and sisters in Christ when you disagree, even strongly disagree? Here's an important principle. Consider the future judgment. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? So he's talking to both groups. The strong who would pass judgment 
Or he uses past judgment, I believe, here to refer to the, the one who eats, despise. So you flip it. Uh, the one who passed judgment, referring to the weak. The one who despises, referring to the strong. Either one can pass judgment or despise. So he's talking to both groups. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So here he's trying to dispel this tendency to pass judgment or to look down upon or to look self-righteously down upon another brother or sister who does things different than, differently than we do, who partakes in certain activities that we ourselves uh, are not in good conscience able to partake in. He says, Here, let me help you dispel that tendency to look down on other brothers and sisters. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. That's how we dispel those tendencies. You find yourself just, your temptation and even your tendency is to cast a judgmental eye on a brother or sister based on disputable matters, things they do differently than you do, things they participate in or things that they don't participate in. And the first impulse of your heart is to think, oh, what a, what a self-righteous or legalistic or um, lawless Christian the way you start to dispel those inclinations out of your heart is to consider the future judgment. You and I will stand before God by ourselves. None of us will be in the room together. It will just be you and God. It'll just be me and God. And he won't ask you about your neighbor's disputable matter and how they followed through with their convictions. He will only be concerned with how you follow through with your convictions. Did you listen to your conscience on a disputable matter? Did you try to align your conscience with the Word of God? Did you follow through with your convictions? That's what the deal will be. He won't be asking you anything about your brother or sister and how they follow through with their convictions on their disputable matters. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So that's what gives the basis for his rhetorical question in verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? I mean, really, here, here's, a, here's a vital key to us dispelling these tendencies of self-righteousness in our own heart. Just ponder for a moment or the rest of the day or this week, make the meditation upon you standing before God the, the mainstay of your heart and, and this week. As you, as you think about your life, as you meditate on the Word of God, just ponder that you will someday give an account to the Lord Jesus for your life, not anybody else's. Will that have a humbling effect on how you treat your brothers and sisters and how you look at your brothers and sisters in Christ with whom you disagree. I trust that it will have a powerful effect. And that's Paul's point. I mean, this, is, this text is so incredibly wise in how it helps us navigate our differences that you could only conclude that this must be inspired text. Because I just don't see how a, a man on his own would, would come up with such wisdom and such principles. Principles that even, at, on one hand, even seem counterintuitive. Yet as you practice them, you find out, wow, this is truly wisdom. So consider the future judgment. 
I believe that the larger and more real this vision of the final judgment is to us in our hearts and minds, to that degree will we be guarded from despising or passing judgment on our brothers and sisters in Christ. Just test God's word on it. Try it this week. Okay. Next principle is the one we're just going to take the rest of our time today because it's uh, very important, significant, and a lot to look at, even looking at another text. How do we get along with each other? We walk in love. Last week I mentioned, or it was two weeks ago, I can't remember. I'm trying to go back and listen to things to make sure I'm comprehensive in what we're talking about or if I need to go back and correct something that was said earlier or whatever. And um, I had said something that a mature believer is able to recognize um, where they have freedom and they're able to recognize where they, the, the scripture constricts them or constrains them. And they are walking in that kind of maturity, able to discern between what is truly essential and what isn't. Something I missed, or something that should have also been added, that is now being added at this point, is that another important vital mark of Christian maturity is our ability to love one another, namely by foregoing certain freedoms when it's out of the best interest of our brother or sister. Love is a key mark of maturity. And it's a certain kind of love. And so Paul talks about it right here. Look at it in verse 13. So he's walked us all the way up to this point. He's addressed several principles. Welcome one another. Get, have an, your own conviction. Recognize the final judgment. Assume your brother or sister's God-glorifying motives. Therefore, he's, he's, now what he's about to say is based on whatever, everything he just previously said. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. So don't, don't, don't do that, okay? Rather than looking down your nose at your brother and sister in Christ, rather you have this attitude. Decide never, it's a strong word, isn't it? Never, ever, ever <laughs> to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Let that sink deep into all of our souls, okay? Because it's probably as it's sinking in there, it's going to find some resistance. But wait, what about my freedoms? What about the things I want to do? And this is why Scripture would tell us that maturity is found and seen in our love for one another, in our ability to then give up certain freedoms if it means the benefit, spiritual benefit and protection of a fellow brother and sister in the Lord. Now, I did say a couple of weeks ago, and I think I've repeated it, that it takes wisdom to know when it's someone who does need a genuine care and concern about a particular stumbling block. It takes wisdom to discern if it's that kind of person or if it's someone who is trying to lay a constraint upon all of God's people that is illegitimate and saying, respect my conscience, respect my conscience, don't violate my conscience. Okay? It takes wisdom, right? This is, we're not saying this is easy and, and cut and dry. It takes a lot of wisdom. But nevertheless, love is recognized and seen when we are able to lay aside our own freedoms for the spiritual benefit of our brother and sister. So we must determine, even today, right now, to never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a believer. What does that mean? What is a stumbling block? How would you guys define a stumbling block? Let's see if we have any... 
ideas about that. What would you say a stumbling block is? And the reason I want to ask you is because I had a conversation with someone, not, not any of you, not even anybody from this church uh, a couple months ago, about a stumbling block. And it was clear that this person did not have a right understanding of what a stumbling block was and is actually, for that reason, is actually kind of uh, restricting their own life in an illegitimate way. So let me ask you, what is a stumbling block? Paul says, don't put one in front of another brother. What is it? It's a situation in which you can potentially cause someone to sin or against their conscience. Okay, that's right. It's a a pretty simple, straightforward definition, and we have to be very clear about it. All right? Uh, I think David's right. A stumbling block is something that causes another person to sin. That's it. It just causes another person to stumble which is another word for sin, violate their own conscience, which is a sin to them. The, the thing that they are partaking in may not be sinful in and of itself, but if they violate their conscience because they think it is, they have sinned. So a stumbling block is simply something that you put in front of somebody or lay alongside somebody that causes them to stumble into sin, causes them to sin. Paul says we should determine right now that we never, ever want to cause another brother or sister to sin against their conscience or otherwise. If we're, if we're hesitant on that, then we have some growing to do, quite honestly. We really do. Love would compel us to say, I never want to harm a brother or sister spiritually. We love one another. We care about each other's souls and our relationship with God and our perseverance in the faith. If I love you, I want to see what is best for you. And what's best for you is a close and near walk to God and eternal heaven with Christ. That's that's what's best for you, right? So if I love you, I don't want to jeopardize that in any way. You might be thinking, how can Derek jeopardize my... Uh, eternal heaven. Well, we'll see here, Paul actually ratchets up the, the intensity of this warning by suggesting that it's possible by causing a person to sin against their conscience to actually destroy them. He used that word destroy. We'll see what that, that word means. But let's go with this definition that we mentioned, this stumbling block definition, causing someone something that causes another person to sin, and see what Paul says about it. Um, He says here, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself. So this saying, I know, this is firm knowledge. He has divine revelation on this thing. He is certain of it. I know and am persuaded that nothing is unclean in itself. Okay? He he has embraced the new covenant. He spent three years... uh, likely in, uh, alone with Jesus, uh, having, receiving revelation uh, right after his conversion. And it was Jesus instructing him personally and revealing to him the, the gospel and, and the, the truth of the, the word of God and how all these things fit together from the Old Testament. And so he had come to embrace fully the, the, new, Kevin, the, the new covenant in all of its entailments. And one important one is that in the New Covenant, all the dietary restrictions are wiped away. There are no dietary restrictions. And even in the Old Covenant scriptures themselves, there's a hint that those dietary restrictions were temporary because uh, Psalm 50, the earth is the Lord and all that it contains, right? 
And so there's even this kind of, there's hinting in the Old Covenant scriptures that this, these dietary restrictions were, were going to be temporary, along with all the other pieces of the Old Covenant system that were meant to be temporary, that they were already had a kind of built-in expiration date, you might say. So Paul is persuaded because of the New Covenant, Christ has set aside and wiped away all the dietary restrictions. That's not important anymore. Everything is fulfilled in Christ. The substance is Christ. You are saved in Christ. You are redeemed in Christ. You're forgiven in Christ. And no more do you have to follow these Old Covenant uh, restrictions, namely the dietary restrictions. So he's convinced, I can eat anything, anything. Cricket tacos in Mexico like my father-in-law. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not doing that. I am not doing that. But he did it. You can do that. Uh, it's free. You're free to do that. Eat whatever you want. It's not, that doesn't really concern God anymore. In fact, God's not so much concerned about the what you eat as the why you eat it anymore. It's a matter of the heart. Um, but let's just take, for example, uh, he says here, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Who would it be unclean for? Well, just imagine the brand new believing Jew, okay? They've been a Jew all their life. They'd come to Christ. They believe in him. They've been forgiven. They're trusting in Christ alone. They're not trusting in their other works. They're not trusting in their uh, obedience to the old covenant, but they are trusting in Christ alone. But nevertheless, they had a whole life of growing up respecting and revering the Old Covenant dietary restrictions, okay? They know Christ, they're born again, but it's really hard to eat rabbit stew. Or if, if hares, apparently hares and rabbits are slightly different, they're kind of, hares are slightly larger than rabbits. I was going to call it rabbit stew. Uh, Leviticus 11.6 uh, said that you could not eat hares. Uh, they were restricted from the, the Jewish diet. So rabbit stew, hare stew, whatever you want to call it. Um, so, you, so you have this new, new converted Jew, and they can't possibly conceive of you eating hare stew, okay? Rabbit stew. To them, it's still unclean. They just, they, the conscience hasn't gotten there yet, okay? And so if they were to eat it, in that state of conscience, they would violate their conscience. To them, it's unclean. They still, they maybe even kind of can mentally agree like, yeah, the old covenant is, the restrictions are wiped away. I just, I still can't do it. I just can't. It just doesn't feel right. So to them, it's unclean. The reality is, it's not unclean. Okay? The reality is, reality is, is that that rabbit stew is not unclean. It is clean, because you can eat whatever you want. The earth is the Lord and all, all of it contains. Paul is right, and he's actually agreeing with the strong in this situation that they are theologically correct as well, that you can eat anything. But to the person whom it is unclean, it is unclean for them. So then he goes on in verse 15, Uh, oh, yeah, so it goes on verse 15. He says, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. So here's the situation. A new Jewish uh, believer, you're strong, you can eat anything. They're having trouble with the rabbit stew thing or the hare stew. Again, forgive me if there's a real significant difference between these two animals. I'm just, uh, you, you get the point, I think. But um, that there's a situation and you're recognizing, boy, they're having, we're having this feast over here and they're just having a hard time watching us eat it or, um, or we're, we're offering it to them and they're just like, oh, I can't. It's, there's, a, there's a grieving here. There's, they can't reconcile these 
uh, differences. And uh, one commentator gives two viable options as to what this word sorrowful or grieved or distressed means here. It says, first, it could mean that our engaging in an activity that another brother thinks to be wrong may encourage that other brother to do it as well. Okay, so that's a possibility. They're grieved because what they're being led to do would not be from faith. So we're partaking in it. We recognize that they can't handle it, and they might even be led to do it, thus violating their conscience, and therefore would be grieved. That's one viable option, and I think is a legitimate one. Number two, the uh, flaunting of liberty on a particular matter may be so deeply offensive to someone that he or she may turn from the faith altogether. And that's also, I think, a possibility and probably included in this because of the way Paul talks about later uh, in the, the next sentence, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So at the very least, we need to recognize that these are important matters. Remember how we went down the list here and said, it's not as though any of these things are unimportant. Doctrinal pillars, they're important, right? We'd all agree. Doctrinal differences, those are important. Right? We disagree on them, but those are in, uh, important, whether or not you're uh, cessationist or continuationist, or whether or not you're covenantal, uh, covenantal baptism or believer's baptism. These are important issues. You don't get to the, doctrine, uh, the disputable matters and say, ah, no big deal. Right? Apparently, it's a pretty big deal because this is an issue where we must love one another, not lay a stumbling block before one another because we don't want to destroy one another. Okay? So the, 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 the Jewish believer is grieved, and if you just don't give a rip about the grief, the spiritual grief that they're experiencing, what Paul is saying is that you and I are not walking in love. Okay? Now, I'm, I'm preaching to myself here, too, because I can look back over the course of my Christian life and see some pretty gross immaturity in my life in the way that I treated believers who appeared to be grieved by what I was able to partake in, and they were not able to partake in. And I'm just like, man, get over it. Right? That's, walk, that's not walking in love. That's not maturity. Right? In fact, it's pretty serious because there's a potential that I could destroy them. This means that the strong Christian, the Christian who is strong in that particular instance, see, remember, we're always going to be weak and strong comparatively to each other on various issues. Issues I might be strong on that you are weak on and issues that flip it in a different scenario, you are strong on and I am weak on. Okay? So this is all... Uh, with reference to particular issues. The strong Christian is to live in such a way that they do not, by exercising their freedoms, encourage another weaker believer to sin against their own conscience or to offend them so badly that they are tempted to turn away from the faith. Now, I think probably some of us have, have experienced this kind of thing uh, even early in our Christian life when we see someone who's a professing Christian who is able to partake in a particular freedom, and given our background, it's so offensive to us. I remember I mentioned to you the, the music thing. Like, man, if, if it had to be explicitly about, the music had to be explicitly about God or did not glorify God. And so when I'm going to college and people are listening to Fleetwood Mac or Dave Matthews Band, you guys ever heard of those? Bands, like Fleetwood Mac, Dave Matthews Band, whatever. Uh, I'm just like, what, how, how can you do that? And I'm like, can you really be a Christian and do that? Right? And it was, it was, it was hard for me to, um, and it starts to make you question, like, you know, is, is this real? Are they real? Right? Um, so I do, think, I, th I do think this commentator is right to suggest, especially in the context, that 
it can potentially offend a professing believer so badly that they are tempted to uh, walk away from the faith. Fortunately for me, that was not the case, and I had to come to realize my conscience needed to be trained in, with regard to these differences and these freedoms that each other enjoy and what truly is sinful and what isn't sinful and so on. But this is what uh, Andy Nacelli says, and this is, I am, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, if I can, at a reasonable expense, I want to get a copy for everybody in here of the little book uh, called Conscience by Andy Nacelli, and um, he co-authored it, I can't, Crawley is the last name. Because it's, it's basically this series in a really readable format, but they, but they say some really helpful things, and I just think it would be great for each of you to have it. So um, we'll see if I can make that happen at a reasonable cost. But here's what they say. They say, quote, The concern here is not merely that your freedom may irritate, annoy, or offend your weaker brother or sister. If a weaker brother or sister simply doesn't like your freedoms, that is their problem. But if your practice of freedom leads your brother or sister to sin against their conscience, then it becomes your problem. Okay, so again, we're not, this is why I was talking, we, had to, we have to define clearly what we mean about a, by a stumbling block. A stumbling block is not something that merely just kind of irritates a brother or sister, okay? Um, they may, like going back to the, the music thing, they may listen to certain music that you just, it just kind of, it kind of irritates you, but it's not going to make you uh, sin, it's not going to cause you to sin, it's not going to cause you to fall away from the, the faith. And I was talking to this person a couple months ago and they had this kind of idea of stumbling block that any, anything that I might do that might uh, irritate another believer because it's a freedom I can partake in that they can't. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking specifically about something that would cause another believer to sin. Okay? But when it becomes that, then it is our problem. All right? Yeah, Jason. So, yeah, so that's a good question. I think that's a fair question. I would say, I think Paul's talking specifically, the sin is the sinning against their conscience by partaking in what you're partaking in that they can't partake in. Okay, so that's the specific issue. The stumbling block is driving them to sin in the specific area with regard to that particular stumbling block. So, in the case of the rabbit stew, uh, they are now persuaded to eat the rabbit, or not persuaded, they are now kind of almost forced in a way to eat it, or they, 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 they feel like they kind of can, and then they do, and they violate their conscience. The sin is in the specific violation of the conscience in that, in that specific area. Um, you're doing something, they're kind of irritated by it, and that irritation grows into anger and sin. I don't think that's entirely uh, off your plate as a, as a loving brother in the Lord. Um, do we want to just continue to always do what, what irritates our brothers and sisters and not, and not have concern about that? I don't think that's loving either. Um, but to just be super clear at this point, the issue of stumbling block has to do with causing that person to sin with regard to that particular stumbling block. Not to sin because they are irritated with you about your 
whatever that particular freedom might be. Um, but if they are, I don't think we just kind of ignore it either. But um, we can't lay it all at their feet and at all at ours. Yes, David. Uh, to expand on Jason's question, um, what about causing them to fear or worry or go in anxiety because of something that you're doing? Like, I'm going to buy a motorcycle. Mm -hmm. You know, your mother or your significant other is like, no, I don't like that. And at that point, like, because um, then there are other things too. I mean, that's a silly example, maybe. No, I don't think maybe it's a silly example. <laughs> I don't think it's silly. It actually relates to the, the question I was talking to with this other person a couple months ago. It was, it was a similar kind of thing where um, I don't want to lay a stumbling block before people because, or this person, because it, it might cause them to fear, right? right? Or like, I'm going to buy a Mercedes Benz and it'll cause people to be jealous or whatever. Right, right. Um, again, that's why we need to be crystal clear and why I read that quote from Nacelli's book because that's not what we're talking about. Uh, we're talking about causing them to sin in a specific area, particularly that area of the stumbling block. Okay. Um, now again, I, I, I think love enables us to take into account these things. But Paul will also say as we go to 1 Corinthians 8 that my brother's conscience doesn't dictate my conscience either. Why should I be condemned? Because I can freely eat meat, right? Um, and just because my uh, brother is unable to, that doesn't mean that that restriction is now laid upon me. When we are together and eating meat might cause that brother to stumble, then I will refrain out of love, okay? Um, but this idea of doing something that might cause someone to fear, or this is now becoming more and more uh, distant from the actual principle. And I can't ultimately uh, be trapped and tied down by the immaturity of another believer on these particular issues. That's why the, the, the definition has to be kept so crystal clear. Stumbling block is causing someone to, to sin in a very specific area. Okay. To clarify, yeah. so, uh, so the principles of love still matter in those other contexts. Sure, yeah. But, um, Particularly to stumbling block, it's um, when someone is participating in something you're doing um, that's causing them to sin. Exactly. So it's a partnership in an action or uh, an uh, enjoyment or indulgence in something that may cause them to sin. Right. Okay. Right. So that you getting the motorcycle yeah. to me, if if the situation is, um, they say we don't want to get you in a motorcycle because then we would we'd be fearful and so on. Um, to, I do not think that's a violation of what Paul's talking about here because that's not uh, doing, partaking in a freedom that's causing them to sin in that specific way. It's, it's, a, it's something that's actually kind of distant from it. You doing this now causes me to, to uh, be tempted to sin in another completely different area. So, and we can't, I mean, boy, if, you, if we did, then you couldn't do anything ever because you could always find someone who could say, I'm afraid, or that makes me anxious, or, right? So, that's a great clarifying question, David. Yeah, Nate. David, is your definition maybe a little bit too precise? Because in this case, we have eating together with people. You're not telling that person to eat meat. Isn't it just eating meat in the same meal as the other person? Or it's like you're eating it near them? Or are you actually inviting the other person to eat meat? Uh, the, oh, the, the, the context. Paul gives a few different contexts. In fact, uh, in First 
Corinthians 8, he'll talk about, in 10, he'll talk about, um, uh, you go over to an unbeliever's house, me and the, me, the stronger brother and the weaker brother, and you go over to an unbeliever's house and they offer food, they offer meat to you. Now, if it's an unbeliever, it most likely came from the meat market, which means it was previously sacrificed to idols. Now, you know, it doesn't matter, right? Because nothing happened to the meat. The earth is the Lord and all that it contains. This meat, there's nothing, you can eat it, right? Um, the, the weaker brother, who has just been saved out of paganism, is, is about to ask, was this just, did you buy this in the meat market? And you'd be like, just don't ask that, right? <laughs> Why? Be, for conscience sake, you don't want to know, right? Right, just eat the meat, right? Um, so there's, 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 uh, there's situations, there's scenarios. I mean, so Paul's giving us certain scenarios. Yeah, um, that's a specific scenario. Some of this is kept uh, more general because it just kind of depends on the situation, right? Um, is your question related to, in, in this scenario, the, the Jewish person is not commanded to eat meat. So them refraining is not sinful. They're not commanded to eat rabbit stews. For them, refraining is not sinful. That needs to be really clear. Um, in, so I think just, yeah, I think to answer your question, some of, we are given specific situations like in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, and in here, I don't think we're given like real specific scenarios because it does need to be kept general because it will be in a hundred different scenarios where this could be the case. So, so go ahead and follow up and see what you, so we can clarify. Yeah, I just think it's maybe not necessarily inviting someone to participate in it. So like if I was eating meat directly in front of like, or if it was sacrificed by like directly in front of the person, mm. conscious of that right. Yeah. So I'm just trying to be careful about how we define the stumbling block. Because I think it can be a little bit broader than just inviting someone directly to participate okay. in that way. Sure. And I think, I think that's true. I think that's what Paul would say. It's not merely inviting them to do it, but what you're doing uh, could potentially grieve them by either encouraging them to sin against their conscience. Um, well, I mean, that would be the primary thing, that they, they would encourage them to sin against their conscience conscience or in seeing you do it now they're troubled they're troubled by a christian partaking in this and now they're tempted to walk away from the faith so uh so i agree with you on in that sense that there is a, a broadening out in david's situation let's so this is great i think this is helpful to help us uh refine our moral sensibilities here so let's go with the moral or the motorcycle scenario David wants to buy a motorcycle. You do? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's cool. Um, he looks so good. Yeah, he would, yeah. He with the, the helmet and the, the black leather. I should have chosen a different example. Yeah, you should have. But here we are. Yeah. So, you want to get a motorcycle. You have... Uh, a family member who says, um, you know, a relative, whoever it might be, uh, close to you, extended, said, uh, man, I just wish you wouldn't do that because that would just cause me to, to worry about you all the time. Okay? So now you have a decision to make. And let's assume, obviously, this person's a, a believer. I think that, that would be closer to the scenario, too. 
Now you have a decision to make. Are you restricted by that person, that person's conscience, according to the principles in Romans 14, to now, because of love, no longer pursue getting a motorcycle? Um, let's ask the questions. Is, are you, by getting the motorcycle, will that cause them to violate their, be persuaded to themselves get a motorcycle and thus violate their conscience? Probably not. Probably not. Well, that's my point, yeah. yeah. Probably not. Is it going to cause them to view your purchase of a motorcycle as something that is, is, uh, would so disturb them about a, a Christian doing such a thing that would cause them to turn away from the faith? Probably not, right? So I think we are out of the realm of Romans 14. And so their concern of, I, might, I would be worried for you, that is now an issue of their Philippians 6, or Philippians 4, right? Uh, their request being known to God, being anxious for nothing, trusting the providence of God, uh, trusting your judgment, and so on. And uh, making their press, if they are concerned about you, then pray regularly for you, and so on. So that's how I would handle that situation. To me, that does not seem like something that you are violating the principle of love and not considering uh, your brother or sister, and you are, I don't see you actively putting a stumbling block in, in their way. Were you going to go, Nathan? Yeah, yeah, yeah go ahead. more like points on the spectrum, yeah. maybe just to clarify. Yeah. 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 And then another one would be like, should you pull, like ride down their street in front of their house really fast? <laughs> <laughs> so that's like that, that's more of the example of eating meat, like with yeah. the same thing, where it's like you're almost like flaunting it or like you're oh, yeah. respectful of their concern. So I would say like in that case it would make sense to I don't think you're putting a stumbling block by purchasing a motorcycle. Right. But like maybe you shouldn't be telling them all the dangerous things you've done. <laughs> I, well, I agree 100% with Nathan, and I think that relates to what Jason was talking about earlier, like this irritation, right, that's now growing into greater and greater anger. Like, I don't think you just say, forget about you. Love compels us to say, okay, we've got to figure something out here. I want to, I want to consider this. So I, I agree, like, so the love, it's not as all, all of a sudden, that doesn't fit with Romans 14, now I'm exempt from exercising other forms of love towards my brother or sister. No, I think Nathan's right. So, and one of the principles we'll see is that you, we can't flaunt our freedoms because that potentially will actually lead people to violate their own conscience. So I like your examples, the, you know, zooming down the street or uh, saying, get on, let's take a ride, you'll find that it's not that bad, you know, things like that. Like, that's not loving, but I don't think it's unloving or a violation of biblical principles for you to, um, to get that motorcycle, yeah. right? James? If he decides beyond that, he's out of that decision-making process, that he's convinced that this is not going to violate this passage of Scripture. Yeah. But if he does decide whether to um, get the motorcycle or not, he should be free in his own conscience, right? So he can't be like, oh, I'm not going to get the motorcycle because you're telling me that, and now I'm, you're binding my conscience. Right. And now I'll have like this bitterness against That's right. this person. So That's you, right. You should be free in refraining from that and know that it's not someone else binding you. Right? 
Right. You are free in both cases. Yeah, that's right. Um, and that's an, I think you make an important point because um, this idea of being bound by another one's conscience and making a decision based on uh, that you're not fully persuaded of, but is basically you're feeling the, the, the being tied down by another person's conscience, uh, that can lead to bitterness and anger. And uh, that's precisely what Paul's trying to avoid, have us avoid. So that's a, a good point, James. Uh, I think Addison is first, and then Madeline. Addison. Yeah. So well, maybe that's not part of the Romans 14, but... Well, that's part of my example, so... Yeah. <laughs> um, I said mom or significant other. Yeah, mom or significant Well, I do... So, uh, so I do think we need to bring in other biblical principles here because uh, I do think there is a difference between a mom and a wife, uh, especially if a man has left the home, Okay. So we're bringing in other biblical principles. And I do think because the, that marriage relationship is unique, it's the only relationship ever in Scripture that's uh, called a one flesh union. Okay? So you're not just, it's not just you anymore. It's not just me. It's, it's Yvonne. It's, it's Amy. right? And so I'll be honest with you. I do take into consider that consideration that am I doing things to help promote Amy's uh, joy and um, uh, peace of mind, or am I doing things to undermine those things? And so, uh, in that case, there. Are, I mean, I have made decisions and refrained from certain things that that I know would cause her undue anxiety. And um, I have also introduced certain things and and helped her kind of walk through. And actually, there are certain uh, decisions that I have made where she had a previous anxiety, but I was patient and I waited and I didn't force the issue and we just walked through it and I kind of just kept on explaining and she needed more information, more knowledge, more explanation of what this is all about. And then she was able to uh, agree and I was able to partake in it and the anxiety wasn't there anymore. So I do think the, the marriage relationship does kind of bring another layer of, of consideration and we, as loving husbands, do not want to create undue anxiety in our wives. But we also don't want to allow them to remain in a perpetual state of uh, unreasonable anxiety as well. Uh, you know, if you could push it all the way to the point where she doesn't want you to leave the house because who knows what could happen if you leave the house, right? I mean, there are all kinds of, who knows? I mean, a, a hawk could come down and, 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 and rip your head off and... and uh, you know, uh, some, some exotic bug can fly in your nose and boom, you're dead. And, and I mean, just all, you could get in a car wreck and you could get shot and you could, so I don't want you to ever leave the house. You must remain in the house. Well, that's, okay, now, what do you do, right? I, you must leave the house to work or whatever. And so, uh, but at the same time, you have to care for your uh, wife's anxiety. So um, you, you, you are, and this is what I said early, early on, right? The conscience is very delicate. So you don't come in with a baseball bat and say, 
okay, you get your conscience in line. It's a, it, it requires delicate calibration. It takes time, okay? It takes careful tending, right? So even in this case where there is an irrational, you might say, or an unreasonable anxiety, you don't just say, come on, get over it. It's okay, out of love, out of, you know, we can, we can walk through this. And uh, so that's, I, I do think though, to answer your kind of the basic part of your question, I do think the marriage relationship does add a layer of, of consideration to this, so. Uh, Madeline. Well, let's define stumbling block. You mean that he is actively partaking in sin? Not act- actively, but it, it would cause him to sin. The, and how do you know it would cause him to sin? Oh, but does he admit that? Yes, but he doesn't okay. admit that the stumbling, he like downplays the stumbling block and doesn't think it's serious and it doesn't want to affect him. So if he is, so this is very clear, if this is something that he is violating his own conscience and you know that, then he is sinning and he is actively destroying his own soul. I mean, that's, that's we can't get any clearer. Like if a person is perpetually, a Christian is perpetually violating their own conscience, they are taking a hatchet to their soul. And so if you know that it is a sin that, and they are violating their own conscience and they are telling you they're violating their own conscience and they don't care, then Houston, we have a really, really big problem. Like we have a... Uh, if, if Scripture is any predictor, then I can, we can say on the authority of Scripture that that person is not going to be a Christian much longer. That they're going to make a shipwreck of their faith. Either... Either it will be an outright denial of the faith, or they will eventually drift into a more liberal version of Christianity that doesn't hold to the um, doctrinal pillars that we were explaining earlier. So, if those are things that you know, sinning against the conscience, doesn't care about sinning against the conscience, and continues in that particular thing, then they need to be desperately helped and admonished. But it needs to be clear that it's those things need to be... We need to know those things, right? Those things need to be for sin. That's why I was asking you, how do you know if it's causing them to sin and so on? Um, in your case, is, you said it's causing a stumbling block to you. Uh, what did you mean by that? Are, are you being tempted to sin in that particular way, or it's a stumbling block in the sense that you are concerned about them? Yeah. Yeah, so we would define a stumbling block. If it was causing you to sin, then that would be a stumbling block. But it causing you concern, that's just love for a, a fellow brother or sister in the Lord. So, but if what you say is true, that is a, a, a desperate situation, a desperate situation. And I think that's why uh, Paul, we need to wrap up, Paul um, uses this strong language here. He's talking about us not setting a stumbling block before people so that we don't destroy them. But he goes on to say in verse 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. In other words, 
the violation of your conscience is sin, and the more you do that, the more you harden the conscience, and the more likely you are to drift off into making shipwreck of your faith. So, um, so it's really serious. It's, that's why love compels us to take care of our brothers and sisters, be concerned about what might violate their conscience and cause them to sin. And uh, don't, we're not going to flaunt our uh, liberties. We're not going to flaunt our freedoms. Our first thought is love towards uh, our brothers and sisters. And our, as Paul will go on to say, the freedoms and things that we enjoy, we need to be careful that we keep them between ourselves and God and, and so on. We'll talk more about what that means practically. Uh, but yeah, one last question and then we will be done. Yeah. This is not a question but a request. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like it, wisdom is sometimes used as a conscience finder. Sure. So in, in, in the scenario where it's like, hey, like I'm not, like it's not a stumbling block for me and stuff, but someone else might come around and say, well, I'm not like led into sin, but now I want to bind your conscience because like it, it's wise for you to not drink alcohol. <laughs> so like, well, man, if you were wise, the Bible tells us to be wise, then you wouldn't drink alcohol. Not yeah. Yeah, I would be happy to, and that's a really good uh, point. That's why we need to be clear in our definitions about what a stumbling block is. We also need to be uh, crystal clear on what actual sin is. Because one of, the, one of the reasons why it's important to understand these principles is because a weak conscience is not a strength, it's a liability. And the reason why it's a liability is because it gets you to focus on things that are not truly sin and it can cause you to ignore things that are truly sin. And so we, we need to be uh, crystal clear on what sin is. Uh, we need to be able to distinguish between uh, walking in uh, sinful disobedience and uh, uh, obeying Scripture, obeying clear commandments of Scripture, wisdom in situations that Scripture doesn't give us direct guidance and so on. And those are things that we can and should distinguish. So yeah, we'll do that in the the future. That's a good point. I wrote it down. Uh, we have, I have, we, we have two more minutes. One, any more questions before I pray and close this up? Yes, Christine. Yeah. So let me pray for that as we close. Um, pray for Megan. Pray for her family. Uh, Megan's uh, been praying on. On Thursday nights, it's been a lot, I think, I don't know if we've been doing it on Sunday mornings, but Thursday nights for sure, we've been praying for Megan's grandma, who had been uh, ill for a while, and she just passed away. It was yesterday? This morning. So we will pray for Megan and her family right now, and then we'll break to go to service. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the uh, word from Romans 14. Help us to apply it. Help us to wrestle with it. Make us uh, growing, maturing, loving Christians uh, who love one another, who are willing to work through these issues with one another. We, uh, I've seen so much maturity in this group and uh, wisdom. I pray that you continue to pour upon uh, us your spirit and the spirit of wisdom and insight. And God, we pray specifically for Megan and her family. They are just heartbroken right now. We know that Megan is heartbroken. She had a, 
a relationship with her grandma and cared deeply about her and um, prayed for her salvation. And we are encouraged by her grandma's recent profession of faith. And we pray, God, that that is a true profession, that she's in glory with you right now. And that would just be a glorious thing. So we thank you for her profession. We, we um, trust that it was true and real. And we trust that she is in glory now and beholding your face. We pray that your spirit would be richly poured out upon Megan, that she would comfort her and her family, and that this might even be an oppor- uh, more opportunity for gospel seeds to be planted. We pray that you would uphold Megan, help us to come around her in real practical and tangible ways to uh, uphold her and to um, uh, minister to her. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.